Father, thank you now for your grace and thank you for your wrath. Lord, your righteous anger, your justice and judgment. Father, we're, we want to know you rightly and want to be corrected. Father, would you give us a heart that would actually want that? We would be humble before you. So Lord, would you help tonight? I pray as always, but would you give great um, mercy to our to my mind and lips and to Lord our minds and hearts, our ears as we listen and think. Would you convict us, Lord, with your truth tonight and give us great hope, ultimately, Father, uh, in the gospel. Father, we thank you and pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, along those lines, I think it's accurate to say that perhaps no other aspect of the kind of God that God is, uh, no other aspect of him produces more reticence or discomfort and confusion than the wrath of God. Perhaps that's not true. It's certainly high up on the list. Uh, David Mathis, one of the guys I read on this, says this, quote, How many of us, if we're honest, can barely stomach the thought of divine wrath? We may genuinely believe the Bible and acknowledge the reality and rightness of God's wrath and an eternal hell, while mostly trying to avoid the subject. In a way, we tolerate God's judgment, but our instinct is to turn away. At bottom, we may be a touch embarrassed by it. I wonder who here feels, identifies with that a bit as you think about this. Not full-on embarrassed, not completely disregarding what the Bible says. He says we, we believe it, but we may feel a touch embarrassed. He concludes, we celebrate Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross, but talk as little as possible about hell, even when sharing the gospel. Uh, That's David Mathis. And then Piper uh, says, and yet, (laughs) Piper says, quote, the greatest peril facing every person, the greatest peril facing every person in every ethnic group, in every place on earth, and at every time in history, is the righteous wrath of God against guilty sinners, leading to everlasting suffering unless God himself rescues us from his own judgment. Poverty, hunger, disease, war, crime, climate change, addictions, homelessness, ignorance, sex trafficking, these bring great global suffering and they pale in comparison to the peril of being under the wrath of God. They are all tragic, but they are all temporary. They may last a lifetime, but the wrath of God lasts forever. End quote. So, uh, in other words, what gives here? This is, at least how it, this is at least how it hits me when I consider these two realities. I think they're both correct, those two quotes. If Piper is correct, I think he is. Why is there... Consider this for yourself. Why is there such a disconnect between the incomparably serious nature? Nothing else compares to the seriousness of this. Why is there such a disconnect between the incomparably serious nature of God's wrath and our avoidance of it, of the subject? More pointedly, perhaps, for example, why, if this is you, do you not share the gospel with more people more often knowing just how serious their predicament is. If, in fact, you're a Christian, 
and believe Christian teachings. Why not? And I don't, don't hear that as a, it's not intended in the moment to just be a, 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 you know, guilt. Get with the program. That's not the idea. It's a genuine question. Why not? Why do you not share more often? And I think as the case with most things, the answer at least in part boils down to our understanding or lack thereof. A great deal of it boils down to that. Uh, Stephen Meyer says this, shared this at the leadership retreat, says, quote, uh, the heart cannot exult in what the mind rejects. The heart cannot rejoice or glory in. The heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects. And I think that really applies here. Our hearts struggle to rightly exalt, even in God's judgment and wrath, rightly to praise him, certainly rightly to act in accordance, because our minds, to some effect or another, reject it. So, uh, what we need is understanding. Among other things, we need right thinking. Um, And so that's part of the goal for tonight, is to do just that. So, uh, what is the wrath of God? That's the first question, (laughs) obviously. What is it? When we say the wrath of God, it's obviously something sounds very serious and bad, but I wonder if you were to give a definition, if you could, if you could do that uh, uh, satisfactorily, uh, biblically. Um, Here's a quick biblical uh, overview. This is a handful of text. Um, the word or the concept, the situation of the wrath of God is that happens at least 600 times, I think, in the Old Testament alone. So it's a common theme, God's wrath is. Here's just a handful of texts. We'll have, I'm going to read several more as we go along, but I just want to get your mind thinking, our minds aware, and uh, breathe some of the biblical air to a clear way, as Piper said, the secular uh, mindset that we tend to have. We need to wake up sometimes. Here's a few texts. I think I put these all in your, on your sheet. If you don't have one, by the way, oh, I think everyone has one. Uh, Romans 1.18 says this, Romans 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 2, 5 and 8, 5 through 8, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing doing good seek for glory and honor in immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, or another translation says, wrath and fury. Romans 9.22, what if God, because he desires to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience, patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Romans 12.19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Ephesians 2 verse 3, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. That is our nature, our natural default position before uh, the Creator God is a child of wrath. 
which I think means under his wrath in that context. Ephesians 5, 6, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. What is coming? The wrath of God is coming, Paul tells the Ephesian church. (laughs) Uh, Colossians 3, 5, immortality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And finally, for this little short list, Revelation 6.16, they will say to the mountains and to the rocks, quote, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In that judgment day, the desire will be uh, considerably more uh, for rocks and mountains to crush them than it will be to be exposed to the wrath of Jesus in that context, which is very interesting. The wrath of the Lamb. Just hide us, crush us. So, what is God's wrath? There's a few verses to get wet our whistle. Uh, God's wrath, uh, simply put, is his righteous anger. His righteous anger. God, in response to evil and sin, is righteously angry or justly angry means the same thing he is justly angry god is a judge and he is a and he is furious over sin over that which he is a judge over that's a simple definition he is a judge and he is righteously angry over that which he is condemning now we are sinful and catch this, this is, I said this already, but this is important. We are fallen creatures, and so we know so very little, and we experience so very little about genuinely righteous anger. I don't think it's impossible to have genuinely righteous anger, and I'll talk about that later, a tiny bit. But we don't have much of an experience. We know little about it because, uh, simply put, our anger is nearly always tainted with sin. So obviously, the concept and the attribute of anger is not in and of itself an unholy thing if, in fact, God has it. Yes, that's who God, a part of who God is. But our anger is nearly always, perhaps always in some way, of course, tainted with sin. We're angry, not because of sin, very often, but because something made us look bad, (laughs) right? Or our friend did better than us. Uh, we get angry, and so our experience of that anger is really, really tampered with sin. We'll get angry because we're inconvenienced, for crying out loud, right? We'll get cut off in traffic, and we get angry. That's anger, but it's sinful. We're angry because we didn't get something we wanted. We want something, and we don't get it, and so we have anger. We end up having wrath, oftentimes, of course, against other people. And so there's nearly always some selfish, prideful element in our anger, And I would, of course, say often overwhelmingly strong presence of such things. I, you know, who's to know? You can't put a percentage on these kind of things. But if you were to guess in the privacy of your own soul a percentage of how often your anger is nearly pure, right? Purely righteous, how often would it be? I don't know. Small. Uh, It's tainted. And so it makes, it, it makes this conversation, uh, it makes thinking about this harder. It makes it difficult because uh, 
it's hard to conceptualize. It's hard to experience uh, pure, righteous, just anger over sin. I think predominantly because of that. God's anger is not like that ever. Never has been and never will be. It will never be tainted with any sinful, evil impulses, desires, reactions. His wrath or his fury is not him losing his temper, for instance. It's not God trying to control himself. None of you have kids, but someday you may experience the need for self-control over your kids. And every now and then, I raise my voice. Every now and then, I yell at my kids. And I always apologize, or almost, almost always, I should certainly always, when that happens. And it's, for me, it's, it's sinful. I apologize because I just sinned against them. I lost my temper. Right? My wrath uh, came out, boiled over. That is not God's wrath. He's not losing his temper. He's not, in other words, out of control. He's never out of control, flying off the handle in an outburst of anger. That's not his wrath. That's not what it is. It's important to understand what it is by what it's not. His furious anger is in perfect proportion to the heinousness of the evil. God's anger is in perfect, holy proportion to the heinousness of the evil. That's what his wrath is. And he is wrathful. Listen to another couple of verses. Romans 2, 8. Romans 2, verse 8. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Or another verse we'll spend a tiny bit more time in uh, uh, later. 2 Thessalonians 1.7. This is a really central passage for some of this. 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Quote, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Or finally, Isaiah 66, 15, Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. And God is right and just in doing so. God's wrath is his righteous anger. That's number one. Number two, God's wrath is just and its expression. God's wrath is just and justice's expression. Uh, when we recoil, I would suggest, and are embarrassed to some degree or another by God's wrath, we show our understanding and assessment of the severity of sin to be small. I think by necessity. When we're embarrassed or we recoil, we show our understanding of just how serious sin is uh, to be not so. It's not so serious. If something has value, then the degrading of that value is unjust and a righteous anger in response is not only appropriate, but it is good or it is just. It's the same thing. 
a righteous anger in response to that which is degrades value is good. It's a just thing. In other words, God's wrath is the expression of his justice. God's anger, his wrath, is the expression of his just judgments. It's the expression of it. God's justice is expressed in wrath. In other words, he is not a mere uh, amoral judge of the universe, an impersonal force saying good or bad, condemned or forgiven. He expresses those judgments. God is not passive in his reaction to sin or passionless in his carrying out of justice. He is not passionless in his carrying out of justice in this sense. This does not mean, again, this does not mean that God is out of control or he's, as Piper put it, he's carried along by irrational emotion, which is like half of our lives, right? You're carried along, we're carried along by irrational emotion. His fury is perfectly aligned with reality. So it's his expression of his just judgments. It's technically a different thing. God is just, and it's, but it's just so central here. And this wrath is expressing it. Two points on this. Uh, one that's simple and a second one that's a quote that gets a little deeper into why. <laughs> why God, in fact, expresses wrath in this way. One, even in our sinful and tainted experience of righteous anger, uh, we get a taste of the rightness of the fittingness of anger, right? So I make a big deal out of the fact that it's hard to understand perfect righteous anger, but I think we get a taste of it. We taste that there's something right about anger against evil. Someone whose anger clouds their judgment is not good, but neither is a passionless judgment of evil, as though there's no fitting reaction. God is not merely just in all his judgments, but is justly and fittingly angry at the sin and sinner. So that's a simpler explanation. It's simply mainly to put, we taste this a little bit, right? Um, There's a sense in which when you see some horrific evil um, on TV or you experience it yourself, that having a passionless reaction is just, man, there's something wrong with that. Do you not care? It's wrong. Check, right? Something wrong with a mere checkmark reaction. Do you not care about the evil, about the person who is committed against? So that's number one. Uh, Number two is a bit more thorough. Here's Piper uh, on this. Basically asking the question, why? Why is God's wrath an expression? Why does he express his justice in anger? Or as he puts it, why is fury fitting? Why is God's fury fitting? Why is it right? He says this, quote, It has to do with the ultimate source of what makes something right. God, as a just judge, meeting out just sentences on the basis of just laws, does not account for the origin of the laws and the ultimate ground of what is right. Track with me here. A little bit of this middle is 
thicker, but hold on. When we trace God's righteousness or justice all the way back, we don't stop with the existence of God's laws. The law has roots. Laws are good or bad for reasons more basic than law. Tracing the rightness of law back to its ultimate source reveals why wrath and fury are essential to divine judgment. He goes on. God's infinite worth is the most ultimate basis of what is right. God's infinite worth is the most ultimate basis of what is right. Right for man and right for God. That is, God always thinks and feels and acts in a way that conforms to his infinite worth. This is his holiness. As, or as Stephen Charnock put it, God's holiness is that he works with a becomingness to his own excellency. What is right for God is what is becoming or suitable, fitting, proper, or appropriate. It's what's becoming to his infinite worth and beauty and greatness. And now catch this. He wraps it up. This is so good. One of the things, one of the things that is becoming for a God of infinite worth is to feel jealous. You could also potentially say zealous. To feel jealous when his beauty, his beauty and worth and greatness are spurned for lesser things. Essentially the essence of sin right there. When God's greatness is spurned for lesser things. The anger and wrath and fury of God are the becoming response when his infinite personal value is scorned, insulted, and belittled. God's response of jealous wrath and anger and fury reveals his infinite personal worth and the intensity of his passion to display, uphold, and share his beauty with those who will have him as their treasure. I know that's a mouthful. But catch this last bit one more time. God's response of jealous wrath and anger and fury reveals his infinite personal worth. And the intensity, the intensity of his passion to display, uphold, and share his beauty with those who will have him as their treasure. I find that really helpful. There's a reason that God's wrath is fitting. That's what Piper is saying. Because God is infinitely worthy. Whatever the case, God is angry. That anger is right because he is God. (laughs) There's another simple way to put it. There is no higher court of appeal. If God is angry, if God is furious over wrath, or uh, is... (laughs) is wrathful over sin. He's furious. It is right because he's God. Who else are you going to appeal to? That's not right, God. (laughs) Make an argument with somebody that uh, God's doing something wrong. It is right, it is good, and it is fitting. Uh, These last three are quite a bit shorter, just FYI. Number three. God's wrath is the manifesting of God's love. This is very short because we're going to be talking about grace next week. It's very similar. 
God's wrath is a manifesting of God's love. Paul uh, tells the Romans uh, in Romans 12, verse 9, that they should quote as his instruction to them, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. I heard someone preach one time, and I can't remember if it was the title of the sermon or what, but they made a big point to say, um, if you're going to love, you have to have hatred in your heart if you want to love well. It's very provocative, right? Obviously, it's like, what in the world? <laughs> That's wrong. So what are you getting at? Like, click. It's like preacher clickbait, basically. <laughs> sermon clickbait. What? If you want to love, you have to have hatred in your heart. And, of course, the, the exposition was Romans 12, 9. That's exactly what he's saying. Let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil. In order to love, you must have hate in your heart. Hatred of evil is simply the necessary condition to love that which is good. It must be there. If you don't hate what is evil, you don't really love what is good and vice versa. Because God loves that which is lovely, he hates that which is evil. Thank God for that. Literally thank God for that. Someone once said, I heard, uh, I can't remember who it was. I looked for it and couldn't find it, but they said this. We are saved, or it was something close to this, either thank or we are saved by the wrath of God. I am so thankful for the wrath of God. And again, it's very like provocative. And what they mean is our God is good because he hates that which isn't. Our God is good because he hates that which isn't. We do not worship a capricious God or an unstable God. He actually does hate that which is evil all the time. We don't worship a demon, in other words. And geez, it's good. It would be a scary thing if that weren't the case, if God, in fact, did not abhor and hate what is evil. So God's wrath is a manifesting of God's love. Uh, number four. There's just a taste on that one. Uh, asymmetry. I can't remember what I put on the handout to this effect. God's love and wrath are not symmetrical. Or you simply could say this. God is not wrath in the way that God is love. Everyone knows that verse. If you were a Christian or grew up around Christians, right? First John 4, 8. God is love. The Bible says a lot about God loving, being, love, uh, uh, being lovely. He loves people. He so loved the world. But First John 4, 8 says God is love, which is an incredible thing. The Bible never says God is wrath. He says he is a consuming fire. But it never says he is wrath. So there's this asymmetry going on that, between the nature of what God is himself that is different with love than it is with wrath. In other words, here's an example to give a practical application to this perhaps. I don't think it would be right uh, of us to sing every Lord's Day. <clears throat> I was going to try and sing this. Sort of. My voice is cracking out. Uh, the wrath of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Right in the middle of worship, imagine that on the Sunday morning. And this, right, I know this, it's intentionally sort of to be weird. It's not really funny, but you know what I mean. You're up. The wrath of God is greater far, right? It's weird. 
To write the wrath of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, wrath of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the angels, the saints and angels song. Right, just replace the word love in that song with the word wrath. I don't think we should do that. We certainly don't do that. <laughs> it's something about that that's not quite right, even though a great deal of that is actually accurate. I didn't do any more of the song, but it's certainly pure. It's measureless. It's strong, right? But we don't sing like that, and why not? Something wouldn't be right if we were to sing that on the Lord's day. And so it's, there's an asymmetry going on. We say God is love. It is love. He isn't wrath. And that's good. And yet, as I was thinking through this part, thinking how you might react, how I might react, I suppose, is think, oh, good. You know, like, uh, there's a symmetry, and I can just kind of dismiss now wrath to the side of my mind. Kind of like, a, oh, phew, okay, God is love. He's not wrath. Ah, that's all I got to really remember. So wrath is a serious thing, and I agree, but he's love. And this thing happens in our soul that we can kind of just then bypass the necessity and severity of, of God's wrath. Because he's not wrath, he's love. So he's just a loving guy. And you end up believing all sorts of false things about who God is. So we don't sing that. He isn't wrath. Yet God's wrath is praised in the Bible. And his righteous judgment a ton more, in fact, than just specifically wrath. But here's an example. Revelation fourteen seven. God's wrath is praised. Uh, Revelation 14, 7. The angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Why should you give him glory? Why should you glorify God? Because the hour of his judgment has come. His furious anger is going to be poured out. And worship him, he goes on, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So there's his reason. Here's his explanation in this place. Uh, why the angel says you should glorify God, why you should worship him is because he is about to judge. He's about to bring judgment. So there's God's wrath being glorified, or God's judgment specifically. God's righteous and fury-filled judgment is a thing to be praised. Catch this. His righteous and fury-filled judgment is a thing to be praised in and of itself because he is God and God is just. It is praiseworthy. It wouldn't be joyfully praised uh, by you if it was against you, of course. You won't, if you, you know, stand in eternal condemnation of the Lord God, you won't be happy about it, obviously. God would be glorified in his judgment, but we wouldn't benefit from it. We would be condemned. So God is not wrath in the way that God is love. Number five, uh, God's delight in justice or his wrathful expression of his justice is not delight in death. This is also very short. But I think it's important to mention 
He delights in justice. He glorifies in justice. Just read a verse in which the angel was commanding them to glorify and worship God because he is a just judge and the hour of judgment has come. So he delights in it. It's a good thing, but he does not delight in death. God's wrath is right and good against sin and central to wrath is his delight in justice. Again, praise the Lord. So he certainly delights in it. He is just. This does not mean he delights in the consequences of his justice for his creatures. does not mean he delights in the consequences in the same way in which he delights in justice. Listen to Ezekiel 33. This is the classic text on this. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Ezekiel 33, 11. Quote, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. He goes on to plead for them to, to turn to life. So not only does he, of course, not have delight in death, but he doesn't even have delight in death of the wicked. God does not, you could also put it this way, God does not, from his heart, delight in their death. He is no masochist. He's taking no pleasure from that. Which again, I don't know, crossed my mind. Various movies and stories in which I am concerned for my own soul sometimes that I am delighting in the gore, the bloodshed, the violence. I think those things, have, those things obviously have place in storytelling. But are you delighting in the thing? Are you delighting in the violence itself? I think that's what he's getting at here. He does not delight. He does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Number six, God's wrath and time. What is the duration of God's wrath? God's wrath considered in time. There's three subpoints here. There's three ways that the Bible talks about God's wrath uh, and time. One is that it's presently being experienced. God's wrath is happening. God's wrath has already begun. Right? Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is, is revealed. Right? Now, Paul writes, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is Revealed currently, as Paul was writing that. Verse 24 of Romans 1. Therefore, since they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, he goes on. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. There is a, a judgment of the Lord in which he said, okay. He gives them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And verse 28 to 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So here's, one, here's some of the examples of what this wrath looks like, of what this judgment looks like uh, in these people's lives. And Paul is making the point in current sinners' lives. Verse 29 of Romans 1 goes on. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, 
maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. They slander others, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is a manifestation of God's wrath, of God's right, angry judgment on sinners. And some people uh, want to make that all of what God's wrath is and throw uh, the next two out. But we ought not to pretend as though that's not an active reality. God's righteous anger is active. It is presently happening in these and other effects. Uh, Secondly, uh, God's wrath in time is that it is coming in the future. God's wrath is coming. God sees fit to warn us. If we persist in unrepentant sin, his wrath will also come in a fuller, final form. It will come in the future. Romans 2.5 again. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. Right? This is an account and it's filling up storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There'll be a final revealing. There's going to be a day and his wrath will be shown and dispensed upon sinners. That's in the future. That kind of wrath will be in the future. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, who God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer... They will, future tense, suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, we'll get to there in a minute, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. There's a future revealing. There's a day coming when each, person, when each person's deeds will be laid bare and judged before the perfect, unprejudiced judge of all men. I want to make a bigger deal out of that in a moment, but we're going to read an article, the article. We're going to actually just read in small groups and talk about that. But geez, (laughs) how often do you think upon that? I mean, honestly, I was genuinely convicted uh, the other day reading through a bunch of stuff along these lines. There's coming a day for everybody that that will happen because God is good. And lastly, see... Wrath and time uh, eternal. The duration of the experience of those who do not repent is never ending. Second Thessalonians 1 9 again. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. There is a sense in which you will be separated from God's presence, from everything that's good. Some of you heard me tell this story before, but I had a 
discussion in seminary once around the lunch table with, I was in a class called Problem of Evil, Suffering, and Hell. And most of the class had considerably different theological perspectives than me, and probably still where I'm at compared to where they were at. But And at lunch, Ramon guy said he was upset at my view on hell and what I thought the Bible taught. And he says, I don't think it's uh, literal fire, it's just separation from God. And for him, it was it was a relief to consider oh, just separation from God. That's a lot better than literal fire. I don't even know if we were talking about literal fire. That was, that's not even the point here. But that it, whatever it is compared to, it's just separation. Whew, you know, like, I'm just separated from God. That's the, that's one, the, the predominant punishment in 2 Thessalonians 1 here. Just separation, what are you talking about? That is unimaginable uh, punishment. Uh, the duration is never undoing. So the punishment of eternal destruction or revelation, there's a number of more verses we could go through on this, but we just don't have time. We're almost done here. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, quote, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, don't worry about what that is. I don't know, but it's something. It means something. These people, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Here's his presence issue. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. How long does the smoke of their torment go up? It goes up forever and ever. Do they have any rest? No, they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So it is eternal. It is forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who stand in judgment, unrepentant. I'm going to close with uh, three very brief words. Man, I wanted to spend a lot more time on this, uh, but you'll have to, we can talk about this if you want. Uh, why eternal justice, just on this point, the eternalness of it. This one seems to be more poignant for, for many. I could read you a whole bunch of quotes that, of professing Christian theologian teachers and authors that hate and think what I just said is despicable. And is akin to child abuse, cosmic child abuse, and is just a huge barrier to faith and is disgusting. And uh, There's plenty of professing Christians that uh, say those things. So why is eternal justice just? <laughs> Which is admittedly an extremely self-serving subtitle. But that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about eternal justice. Why is it just? Because people often struggle with this. So here's three responses, and very, very base, base, uh, short here. I'm not going to elaborate on these, but here's just three responses out of many that you could say. Uh, first and foremost, the simple question is and should always be, what does the Bible teach? If you are a Christian, you believe the Bible. And if you don't believe the Bible, you're not a Christian. That's how it works. 
doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you ever understand it all, but your disposition is to believe the Bible. If it teaches thus that hell is eternal, that God's eternal justice is in fact eternal, then our job is to conform to it. This goes a lot further than you think in your soul and it's forgotten a lot more than you realize, perhaps just for your own soul. Just a simple thing, well, what does the Bible teach, first of all? Does it say it? Does it teach it? <laughs> it's an extremely important question, right? So if you do, in fact, or know others that, in fact, struggle with thinking about hell being eternal, I would suggest you, <laughs> if you don't struggle with it, I should, per- well, I might regret putting it this way. Take this with a grain of salt. Perhaps you should struggle with it in a certain sense, meaning maybe you haven't really thought too hard about this. A lot of people grow up believing in hell, and the reason they leave the faith is because they realize one day, what in the world am I believing in? They've never really thought it out and believed it well. And what does the Bible teach? Secondly, uh, this is just an exhortation. It's not necessarily wrong to struggle with it. It's not necessarily wrong. Often I think, in fact, it's not. It's not wrong. It's not you being disobedient. You can share that you struggle, in other words, with your brothers and sisters. You can tell. You can share that in small groups. Man, there's just so much of me that, I'll just be honest, doesn't like it. I don't like thinking about someone being eternally under the wrath of God. I don't like it. Well, I would say to you, if you tell me that, I'll say, well, join the club. I'm not going to pretend like, yeah, I'm perfect. I love thinking about that, right? Jeez. There is time and growth and understanding. Time, growth, and understanding and ultimate trust in God's goodness are not incompatible with struggling about it. Come to the Lord and bring your complaints. The psalmist says, come to him in honesty. He knows it anyways, obviously, right? Pretending like you have no struggle with it is probably not a helpful thing. No one likes thinking about it. Last, and actually last. The just punishment is in accordance with the value and glory of the offended. The punishment is in accordance with the glory or the value of the offended. In other words, you wouldn't spend eternity in hell, eternity under God's wrath, for stealing 20 bucks when you were 12. This is why people think it's unjust, or it's an example. Jeez, really? (laughs) I stole 20 bucks? That's on the list? I'm going to spend eternity in hell for that? doesn't seem exactly just, and I would say, correct. That's not just. That's not obviously not just. You repay the 20 bucks, you double it, I don't know. Eternity of torment, it's not just. You would spend, rather, eternity in hell or under God's wrath for sinning against an infinitely holy God and not repenting. That's what you spend an eternal punishment under for. It's for sinning against the infinitely holy God. The offense is infinite because of who God is. 
this is crucial to get this. If you don't get this, you will never start, at least, to understand why it's just. An imperfect analogy might be that if you assault a passerby on the street and you slap him in the face, uh, there'll be some con- there could be consequences, right? They could press charges for, for battery or assault or whatever. Um, you could spend a night in jail. I don't know. I don't know what the consequences would be. But they would be different than if you snuck into uh, the President of the United States' lecture on national TV and ran up and punched him in the face. Those will be different consequences. Why? They're both humans. The president isn't more valuable than any other human being, right? We believe that as Christians. Yes, they're both made in the image of God, yes. So why would the consequences be different? And I think rightly so. Because of the value and glory of the office, of the person holding that office in that particular case, who is offended. It's a bigger deal. And God is infinitely holy. And that is who we sin against. Let me read... um, where we'll be going next week, essentially, and I'll read this in closing here, from Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is more or less a summary of our situation. Well, <laughs> more or less. It is a summary of our situation under the wrath of God. And then uh, next week, we'll begin in verse 4, essentially. Hear this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Really bad news. And then verse 4, as some have said, the best two words in all the scripture but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he goes on to praise God for his grace. So that's where we're going next week is the but God. God is full of wrath we do stand condemned before him as sinful human beings and grace is offered. Let me say a word of prayer and then we'll break for a few minutes for small groups.